When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, before we get going here, I just wanted to thank all the uh, Patreon supporters. A couple of you guys joined uh, this week, and that's been awesome. I want to thank everyone who's been subscribing on the YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed and you're watching this, please go ahead and just hit that subscribe button. That would be huge. Trying to get up to 1,000 here pretty quick. And uh, hopefully, if you're watching this video, it's up to like 12,000, 100,000. You're like, what is he even talking about? That'd be fantastic. Um, but if you also, uh, another way, if you wanted to support the podcast, you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment. That would be huge. Um, then I don't have to talk about myself so much in the openings and pester you guys with this stuff. So uh, without further ado, let's get into the topic for today. I have with me Carl K.J. Johnson. He's the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago. And this is a dude I could talk to for hours. And I know this because like a couple of days ago, I was at his house for five hours talking about this stuff. So I thought it would be so fun to get him on the podcast and share all his wisdom with you guys. So KJ, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Hey, thanks. And uh, we don't mind hearing about you. I think we're turning, tuning in for you more than anybody else. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, dude, I'm, I'm pumped about this. This is a long time in the making here. And uh, I'm excited to share you with the world. You work for the, you're the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago. Now, that name, C.S. Lewis, it, it probably makes people think, a bunch of people reading C.S. Lewis all the time, like, can you just help explain what is the C.S. Lewis Institute? Yeah, well, we're, we're a cult, and we just sit around reading Lord, no, no, I was kidding. I was going to say Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> and That's exactly what we're not. Yeah. Um, we were founded in uh, 1976 by two guys. We call them the two gyms. Jim Houston and Jim Hiskey. Um, some folks may know the name Jim Houston. He had gone on to found Regent in Vancouver with J.I. Packer. Hmm. He was friends with Packer and John Stott and those kinds of guys. Yeah. Um, but so Jim Houston and a guy named Jim Hiskey, and he was a, a professional golfer, PGA, and basically uh, evangelized the PGA in his time. Uh, and, and runs around the world talking about Jesus. He's he, he's never met a gospel conversation he won't have. Um, he's just a great guy. They um, they saw a need to create an organization where, in their mind, was was not dedicated to making more people like uh, making more people making more fans of Lewis, but to make more people like Lewis. They yeah. wanted to build people up in heart and mind, people who were just totally engaged in their faith in both personal and public life. And that really, Lewis really kind of character caricaturizes that a bit because he was totally sold out both in his profession with all of his writings 
and as well in his personal life. And it just worked out that uh, Jim Houston was personal friends with C.S. Lewis. Hmm. And they both taught at Oxford. Houston had been there for years. So they just thought, why not sort of use him as the patron saint? And and I like to think of it as, you know, the Apostle Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right. We've just updated the imagery a little bit of like, this is what it might look like in a modern day setting. Somebody in a professional setting who's engaged in both heart and mind. Completely. Mm-hmm. So we're not trying to turn people into little Lewises in the sense of we want them to become great writers or great scholars, but we want them to engage, you know, in Romans 12 too, be transformed by the renewing of their mind yeah. at the same time, not becoming men without chests as Lewis would say. Right. So, man, that's all. Well, how does that work? I mean, I know, but how, for the, for the folks yeah. at home, how, how does that, uh, how do you go about making other people whose head and hearts are like Lewis's? Well, we do it through a variety of, of means. You know, we like to work. We like to work as a buttress to the church rather than a parallel institution. And our mission is to see the church uh, fulfill the Great Commission more fully. So everything we do, we try to do in and with and alongside the church. So mm-hmm. we'll do, you know, the typical parachurch thing. We'll do conferences and seminars and create resources. And we always try to do that in and in partnership with the church. But for 20 years now, We've been running this program called the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program, and it's a one-year uh, discipleship program where folks spend a year with us. It's not a—it's not like full-time school. You, you you keep your job, you know, and you don't move or relocate. Um, but you join us with for a year. It's a tuition-free program, um, and we spend each month focusing on a different biblical theme, and we kind of plumb the depths of that theme as much as we can. And we read plenty of C.S. Lewis, but it's not all Lewis. Mm-hmm. We read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, A.W. Tozer, Andrew Murray, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, fill in the blank. Yeah. And uh, we spend a year building people up in heart and mind to try to give them the mind of Christ. We don't, we don't give them, but you know what I mean. Help them cultivate that. Um, and in it's also a laboratory for discipleship. You know, I like to say that you're not coming and spending a year in a spiritual spa. You're spending a year doing spiritual CrossFit. This is a year where you're going to you're going to work out your faith and your salvation in a serious way in a participatory community where uh, you're going to disciple others and be discipled. You're going to get a mentor. You're going to be challenged in new ways. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to read things and, and kind of get an academic intellectual ascent. It's another thing to put those in practice. And so we focus on themes of spiritual formation, Bible study, evangelism and apologetics. I mean, you can't do Lewis without touching on evangelism and apologetics. Um, We focus on calling. And of course, the the whole program culminates uh, with the Great Commission, because at the end of the year, you're commissioned as a C.S. Lewis fellow. And we, you know, and you build a disciple making plan uh, so that you can go back into your context, whether it's home, neighborhood, church, work, school, whatever it is to go out and, and uh, live out Christ as best you can. Yeah. Well, dude, so you, you mentioned discipleship and we talked a little bit about spiritual formation. Uh, do you see a difference? So sometimes spiritual formation by, uh, you know, I love John MacArthur, but uh, he used to just hammer this. I don't know if he still does spiritual formation and he was like against it. And then, uh, you know, you get anyone who's read like Dallas Willard and they're like, dude, it, that's it. Like spiritual formation and everything. When we think of spiritual formation, is it synonymous with discipleship for you? Like, how, how do we think? Is there a difference? Is there overlap or the same thing? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I think I would want to uh, affirm a bit 
why someone like John MacArthur has, you know, concerns or reservations. I, mm-hmm. cause I think can make that into sort of a very airy fairy mystical thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, D.A. Carson wrote a really interesting article a few years ago. I'm for, I, I wish I'd uh, remember the title. I can give it to you so you can put it in the show notes later. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it cautions against turning everything into spiritual formation. Yeah. And and it, there's a very deliberate approach to it. So I'm not against spiritual formation. I wouldn't say discipleship and spiritual formation are synonymous. Okay. I think there's on a Venn diagram, there's a ton of overlap. Yeah. And I think um, your discipleship should engage in formation. I mean, the idea is we're supposed to be, I remember, uh, you know, so we have a mutual love for our professor, Kevin Van Hooser. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved something he said once in class that really stuck out to me. He goes, Christian spirituality has a very distinct form. It's mm-hmm. Christian form. And, uh, you know, if you read his latest book, Hearers and Doers, and one of his constant analogies is that you are being formed in some way or another. The question is what's forming you. So right. spiritual formation is happening. Um, I think from a Christian perspective and in our efforts to disciple one another and ourselves is that there should be spiritual formation. It's just like, what are those techniques that we can use to help form us more like Christ? Hmm. So I, I like the word, um, yeah, I follow um, a, a guy named Donald Blesch or Bloch. I, I always get his last name wrong. I always say Bloch, but everyone says different. Yeah. Yeah. Him. And then, um, uh, Robert Sosi, who was a professor, died several years ago um, mm-hmm. out of Talbot, uh, Biola. And he, they, they use the word transformation more. And Sosi likes the word spiritual transformation better. And I, and I actually kind of like that because we are to be transformed. Romans yeah. 12, you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Semantics games, sure. Um, but those practices in our discipleship, you know, um, meditating on the word, Perhaps if it, you know if it's called for fasting and prayer, that sh- are are things we can use. But at the same time, we can get really legalistic with our spiritual formation too. You know, just because you fast for you know, let's say you're you're hardcore and you fast during Holy Week, that's not going to guarantee anything. Right. And I think Dallas Willard would affirm that as well. There, you know, um, Tim Keller once said that legalism is earning your salvation, but discipline is doing something good in and of itself. And I think if you have that kind of approach in mind you're doing something because it's good for you and it's cultivating discipline or driving you deeper into the word or whatever that's great silence solitude get away for a weekend yeah um, but there's no guarantee of that either and one of the things i think the dangers of spiritual formation is sometimes we go do those on a solo effort and we know that you know christianity is a team sport right yeah so um you can't go solo and just continue to oh, i'm gonna be this ascetic monk and go hide out in the cave or on the top of the tree or something like that. Right, right. Well, yeah, that's good, dude. So so discipleship can incorporate spiritual formation. Do you think that spiritual formation does have more of an individ- individualistic aspect to it, like rightly so? Like there's a, the practice of solitude or doing your evangelicals can't get away from quiet time. We can't think of a different word for that, I guess. But <laughs> you know, you're just you alone with your Bible, like in the morning or whatever, you know, or meditating on the word alone. Whereas like discipleship doesn't really make sense to do alone at all, right? Yes. Um, yeah, I think there's something to that. Although I think you can still do individual activities and in community. Hmm. Um, we pray together sometimes, but we also pray when we're alone. Right. You know, let's just say, you know, it's Lent and you and I are in the same congregation. We might both choose to fast from something 
and we can hold one another accountable. And so we're fasting together, but we're not fasting together. So say you give up, you're giving up caffeine for the, for the, for Lent and I'm going to give up Netflix or something like that. We can just keep checking on one another yeah. for those sorts of things. So I think That's even, good. you know, I just think sports is a great analogy. I mean, you're a wrestler. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're out there on the mat by yourself, but you train with others too. So I, I was thinking the same thing, dude. That's, that's, that's great. Yeah. Well, and I was, you know, we talked about this the other day that I, I, I fenced in high school and college and yeah. when you're on the strip, it's an individual thing, but then at the same time, it's a team sport because there's an aggregate score for how the team mm-hmm. and when we go back and practice and things like that. So I think the Christian life isn't that different. We can ultimately, we got to perform. I mean, I can't just ride your coattails right. or your parents. Or, right. Right. Uh, yeah. But, but I can also rely on your encouragement or sometimes the kick in the butt. Like yeah. KJ, thought you were serious about this, this whole faith thing. Come on. Yeah. Dude, that's a, that's a great analogy. And, and with your partners, or the, the, we're other fencers, uh, you're sharpening each other back in the room and then you're cheering each Pun other intended. on. What's that? Pun intended. Sharp, yeah, sharp, sharpening each other. Well, dude, you got to say that you you did saber too. And and I didn't know this. I didn't know any of this, but then I was like, did you do saber or um, uh, foil? And you're like saber. And that, that's the most epic thing ever. Cause you got this big, like, I always think of like Aladdin sword and you're like, just hacking away at people. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. You got that big, um, is it a claymore behind you? That is a, um, it was given to me by the first class of C.S. Lewis fellows in Chicago. It's a replica of Peter's sword from Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. So oh, they, sick. The, the, the hilt is the head of um, of Aslan. So it's not a real sword. It's sort of a, a movie replica kind of thing, but it was cool. It was a gift. And and they knew that I'd been a fencer, so there was sort of that play on oh, things. Oh, nice, dude. That's but awesome. in, I guess in a pinch, I could use that and hack away at somebody if they're breaking yeah, in. totally. All the Saber days come back. Um, well, okay, KJ, this is something that we've talked about a lot too is so so going furthering on into discipleship i work for athletes in action and a lot of crew discipleship athletes in action discipleship we we do emphasize one-on-one though um they're they're trying to get us not to i love one-on-one discipleship did it this morning with one of my wrestlers i love i love the intimacy that's a weird word to say but like the such a christian word uh I love like dudes being honest. Like they'll talk to you about like, Hey dude, I'm really struggling with pornography or this or that, or I just want to punch a student in the face. And they wouldn't say that in a larger group. And so I really like that, but you always, you always get me and you say like, dude, it's not just one-on-one. Like it, it's broader. Can you just explain like what, what is discipleship? I guess. Yeah. Um, well, broadly discipleship is a turning away from your old life in, uh, turning towards Jesus to follow him. Um, for you know salvation and uh, for eternal life and to know him and anything that involves that uh, involves the cultivating of that and becoming more like so I like to boil it down to you know it should be pointing people to the work and person of Jesus Christ helping them to become more like him uh, in character and in person and enjoy the union we have with him through the Holy Spirit and if you're not somehow contributing to that um, I think you're you're kind of wasting your time. Um, in a, you know, even if it's an indirect sort of thing. Um, and I, I wouldn't discourage you at all from one-on-one stuff, especially mm-hmm. I think with the age you're working at. We, you know, we read uh, and follow a number of different scholars uh, on discipleship. And uh, I like to just use a sort of a financial example of sort of broaden, broaden or diversify your discipleship portfolio. There you go. Because, you know, discipleship is going to take multiple forms. Jesus spent time with 12 he discipled the 12 at, at 12 at a time sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Paul, 
is well known uh, with Paul, the Paul Timothy sort of thing. And that's often the paradigm that we always we focus in on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Jesus had his three, his, you know, the three guys he did focus on 12, 72. Um, and uh, there's a guy named Greg Ogden who used to be a pastor here in Chicago. He's written a couple of really good books. Uh, his most popular is probably Discipleship Essentials. But the one that's most helpful is transforming discipleship. And he talks about these different forms of discipleship mm-hmm. and kind of breaks down the pros and cons of each. And so, you know, um, you're still close enough in age right now to these guys where they probably wouldn't start writing you off as a sort of an old fuddy-duddy. Yeah. But, you know, there are some young folks that really have trouble with authority. And it's possible at some point that one of these guys would just be seeing you as nothing but an authority figure. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to open up to you at all. And so... You add one more or two more guys in the mix, groups of three to four people, that can change the dynamic uh, uh, immensely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, the accountability is easier because instead of them writing you off as just being a jerk um, and creating a personality conflict, you've got a couple other guys going, no, no, Parker's right. You said you were going to work on your temper, but, dude, you don't, you don't seem like you're getting any better. You're getting worse or something along those lines. Um but on the flip side, uh, you might find people even in a setting of just three people, they're so broken and hurt and or have been betrayed so so often that they're only going to open up in a one-on-one setting. So the idea is just to try to read the room, so to speak, mm. and be able to work to whatever is best for that person at that time. And you can do multiples of these things, too. You know, you can meet with that kid one-on-one after you've met in a group of three or four. So, And you probably are doing that already. You meet with yeah. guys in a group and you're meeting one-on-one. So uh, I just maybe they're focusing on that in a way that they don't want you to neglect the one-on-one. Cause I know the one-on-one intimidates a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, anytime I invite someone to be a mentor in our program, unless they have been actively mentoring everybody to a T, I don't care if they're 35 or 65, they usually go, Oh, I'm not ready. And mm. it's just, we haven't really prepared our people for that. And it's a daunting responsibility and it, you know, we can get into more, but it's not that hard. Yeah. Right. It's like, follow me as I follow Christ. And yeah, like you, you should you should be following Christ. So if you're if you're not doing that, then you should probably not be discipling people. But yeah, I um, who is it? Maybe Vody Bakum. Uh, some some pastor once said, "Hey, if you took a bricklayer, and I know this because my my father in law is a bricklayer, loves bricklayer analogies. If you take a bricklayer and you're uh, you're the boss of the brick company, whatever laying company, and you say, uh, "Hey, man, uh, this guy's 18, just joined our our uh, just hired him." Can you, you've been doing this for, for 45 years, man. Can you show him the ropes? Can you take him alongside and, and teach him that? And you go, yeah, of course. If he goes, hey, man, I don't know nothing about bricklaying. You know, I'm not, I'm not the boss. I don't know nothing about it. You'd be like, what do you mean you don't know anything about bricklaying? You've been doing this for, what have you been doing for 45 years? Like, you're, you're fired if you can't teach him that. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And you go, well, hey, dude, like, you're, you've been a Christian for 45 years. Can you take this young 18-year-old dude and, and show him the ropes of, of Christianity, how to be a Christian? They go, well, hey, I'm, I'm no pastor. And it's like, bro, hey, you're fired. What are you talking about? You're no pastor. Like, haven't you been following the Lord? And I don't want to be, um, it, there's a certain context where he said that, where it made sense. And I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to hammer everyone. But to some extent, I think that's, we just haven't. Well, there's truth to that. I know a yeah. guy, when I was in the Marine Corps, so, um, you know, we'll go off to specialty schools in the military. And this guy went off to artillery school. And, and so the, the main artery artillery school is in, uh, at least it was, I, I'm a little behind since I retired, but Fort Leavenworth. And uh, that's it's the army school. You know, they're the they're big army. They got the school. Okay. And when you go and check into one of those kinds of schools, it's, it's just like checking in 
at a new at a new university. There's a bunch of check-in stations, and they got the tables, yeah. you know. And so there are, um, you know, campus or base ministries there, just like you would have on a campus. Okay, mm. you got crew. There's the navigators. They have military arms as well. And I think it was a crew. I'll just for sake of argument, we'll just say it's crew. It could have been anyone else, but um, this guy went up, and he's he's a Christian. He went up to the crew table and wanted to sign up for Bible study. He's like, yo, I want to sign up for Bible study. You know, um, where, where do you got things going on? And as they're talking, getting to know each other, and he told them, hey, I've been a Christian for 10 years. I really want to dive in, and I want my faith to matter while I'm in the, in the Marine Corps, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, okay, cool. Where do you live on base? And he's plotting things out to figure out where he could plug him in. He's like, oh, you're over here. We don't have anything going on over there. How about you start a Bible study because I need something over there? And the guy goes, I'm not sure I'm ready to, do, to lead a Bible study. Hmm. Now – figure out what nine out of 10 ministry leaders would do. They would have said, okay, we'll find someone and we'll get you plugged in. This guy, instead, he goes, you've been a Christian for 10 years and you're not ready to lead a Bible study. He said, let me, he said, come back when you're serious. Yeah. And just left it. And the guy walked away stunned. He couldn't sleep that night. And he came back the next day, found the guy and said, you're exactly right. I need to do this and stepped out and that's exactly the sort of thing, you know, we don't have to be that harsh about it. Right. Right. It's like, Come on, dude, you've been a Christian for 30 years. You could at least meet with a 16-year-old kid and at least listen to his problems. Right, right. I love that. I'm glad. I thought you were going to correct me there. Dude, that's great. Oh, no, no, no. You went no. even further there. <laughs> um, yeah, dude, I I, uh, I love discipleship, and I, I get all worked up about it because, I don't know, sometimes I'm like, dude, the, the older folks, they didn't disciple us. They didn't, they didn't prepare us for college, blah, blah, blah. And I think about it, I'm like, no, well, no one really prepared them either, right? Like this, this just hasn't happened in generations. That's exactly right. So let me go back to Jim Houston. We had him probably about 10 years ago, and he did a talk aimed at baby boom. And he opened it up pretty much. I mean, he's a gentle guy, but he basically, with both barrels, opened up on the baby boomers going, you haven't discipled the next generation. Yeah. You failed. And then kind of pause for effect because you haven't. And he was basically exhorting them as we have to break this cycle. Mm-hmm. We have not been discipling the generations one after the other, and they haven't been. And I, I've been convinced, you know, that, you know, there's a big push and, I, and I'm all for it. You know me. Uh, apologetics was, you know, the, the gateway drug, if you will, for me to get back into serious theology and discipleship. And I think a lot of, of the role of apologetics, especially in the life of discipleship. But um. Sometimes, you know, the old the old adage, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem's a nail. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes we do that with apologetics and everything's got to be fixed through apologetics. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to have a robust. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We need a robust a- apologetics and train our kids and all that. But sometimes that's the only thing we think of doing is I don't want to send my kids off to college without all of this. And I don't care. You could be a young William Lane Craig when you're 18 years old and you're on campus and there's all of these pressures you're probably going to fold at some point. What we do need to do is equip them with a, a fuller vision of discipleship. So they, even if there's no campus ministry around, like when I went to college, um, I was, I was a pretty good Christian kid. I tried really hard. I was earnest. Hmm. And then I went to college and I did the tip. I'm the statistic went way out there. I want yeah. to tell all the stories. Um, I didn't know that there was inner varsity. I've never heard, I'd never heard of those things. No one, my youth pastor didn't think to tell me about this stuff. Right. Um, I went to a church once and it was a really flaky church. I'm like, I'm not going back. And had I at least had a rudimentary understanding of discipleship, 
the few Christian kids I knew on campus, I might have gone to them and said, hey, look, let's just get together and do something. And I might have banded together sort of a band of brothers thing. So we need more than apologetics. We need to put in the context of discipleship, finding others to be with, because you're going to need moral support. I mean, mm-hmm. when that cute girl's looking at you at a party, you're you're going to have a hard time resisting that, even if you can break down the Kalam cosmological argument and, and all of its, you know. Maybe that's why she's looking at you. Who knows? <laughs> well, you know, if she's the <laughs> Christian, then, okay, then you can go break out the syllogisms. And, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's, it's rough without that, that, that discipleship. So, I, yes, go in and have your apologetic arguments, but you got to do it in community and um, disciple. That's why discipleship's what we're called to do. It's, yeah. it's what we are all given a responsibility of, right? Yeah, dude. I, and even, even as you bring that up, I thought if you're trained in, in apologetics, but your personality sucks, um, no one wants to listen to you anyways. If you're not like a fun person, like I, I think that's part of it too, is being, being someone who enjoys life, who has joy because you have the joy of the Lord. Right. Like who, someone who who their joy or their happiness is not based on circumstances, but they're like, dude, I love Jesus and I can make fun of myself and I can say, yeah, I'm the Ned Flanders of school or whatever. Like I, you can be silly and fun because you're trying to attract people. And then, yeah, you need the content. You need the 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 gospel to share with them. But you also need to be like a, a, a fun person, like a person who people want to be around. Um, and I don't know, we all have different personalities and stuff like that, but I think that's gotta be part of it is like being like Jesus and, uh, being like the, the full person there. Yeah. I, it, it's a holistic approach to the Christian life. You can't reduce it to an argument. Um, you can't reduce it to service. I mean, some people, you know, people will err in one way or another. I like to use this analogy is, you know, we, we like to think in categories, right? Hmm. And so a minute ago, we were talking about, you know, sports. So immediately we go to the mental bin of sports or I brought up the military. Um, so if we just kind of restrict it to the Christian life. You know, we just talk about apologetics, theology, whatever. And so you got that bookshelf behind you. Right. So hmm. each one of those if each one of those mental categories was like a book on a shelf, you know, OK, so we go to apologetics, we go to missions, we go to, um, you know, fill in the blank with whatever else, theology, systematic theology, historical theology F- for too many people discipleship is one of those books on the shelf. Mm. And I like to think of discipleship as the bookshelf. Yeah. Okay. So each one of those things is a means to living out your discipleship or let's switch up analogies. It's let's use something more Lewisian cul-de-sacs versus roundabouts. Yeah. We can make theology. We can make um, apologetics. We can make justice. You fill in the blank with whatever it is. We can make any one of those things a means into an end rather than a means to an end, you know, it it shouldn't be an end in and of itself. It should be a means to an end. And so, you know, why are we doing theology? Well, for the purpose of formation, for the purpose of, you know, uh, flourishing to, to help other people understand and disciple them. Why do we do apologetics? Why do we pursue justice or why do we serve in the church? I mean, there are people who get so caught up in service. They're never really engaged in their hearts. They're just doing, doing, doing. So it, it can be done with anything. That's a great point, man. Yeah, that is very, very Lewisian. And he, he might even say, you know, there's a, his essay, first and second things. And like, yeah, well, that's exactly right. You got to put first, you have to put first things first in order to get second things. He yeah. says, if you put yeah. second things first, you won't even get first things. Yeah, you'll miss everything. Uh, also, he, he talks about theology being like a map. 
it's like a map of the ocean or a map of the coast. And like, you actually want to see the coast as well. So don't get so lost up memorizing the map that you never go check out uh, the thing in itself. Yeah, exactly right. You know, you know, or, um, you know, our, our buddy Kevin Van Hooser has used uh, analogies and I like, you know, in his book, Faith Speaking Understanding, mm-hmm. the, and this wasn't his analogy, but when I read his understanding of theology for the purpose of discipleship, I had gone and talked to him after reading it and said, you just gave fuel for my discipleship engine. I better understood the role of theology in discipleship, you know, how it can be fuel for, you know, uh, what I call the discipleship. Engine. So we can we can trade analogies all day long. But ultimately, I think a more broader understand a more broad understanding of discipleship can can drive those particular areas we're called to with a little bit more purpose yeah. and not feel like we're in conflict, you know, um, with with the Great Commission. And yeah, we can we can boil it down. It's you know we're called to make disciples and baptizing and teaching, and you don't want to get too far away from that. But you know maybe you're on the hospitality team at church, hmm. you know, and this seems like a, a small job, right? Maybe not. Maybe you're the one person who affects whether that stranger coming in the church is going to stay, feel welcome, whatever. Um, And you got to do it just right. You can't overwhelm them with tons of hugs and overdoing it and scaring them away because the introvert's like, ah, don't touch me. Or, or the other side of someone goes, I walked in and nobody paid attention. So the role of the hospitality person, right? That may be a first line sort of thing in fulfilling the great commission of drawing somebody into this, into this family, into the body of Christ. So I think it can add dignity to the different things that we do. Um, Sometimes it's much more direct work. Hey, KJ and Parker are sitting down, getting into the word and sharpening one another or several degrees thereof and can feed into that. Yeah. Man, that's great. Parker may never, Parker may never meet that guy. If the person who's on the hospitality committee was a jerk and chased that person out of the church, you never get a chance to meet with them. Right. Yeah, dude, I have so many, so many memories of my dad on the, on the greeting team. He's crazy. He's like, he's like concentrate form of, of Joel and I. <laughs> he's accidentally, <laughs> he's accidentally chased people away with his, his outwardness. Um, but, but he has been a huge blessing to people as well. So that's funny. Dude, there's yeah. so many times he's a nut job, man. I love him. Oh man. Okay. So, so KJ, I wanted to, I wanted to get into the Marine stuff. Like, did you, um, the, the things you flew, you flew, uh, choppers but they're are they called frogs I, I never yeah okay so one one lesson is uh the army calls them choppers in the navy and marine corps we call them helos helos well, that sounds way cooler okay helos yeah whatever it, it, it's just so you know when you're talking to your audience um i flew something called a ch46 it's a tandem rotor so it's the two rotors front to yeah. back and we're often confused with the army's version which is a much bigger helicopter they fly the chinooks this is the same family of helicopters, um, but you know helicopters are kind of broken down into light, medium, and heavy. Okay. And they the the Chinook is the heavy class because they're lifting big vehicles and stuff like that. Mm. Art was a medium class, and it was more like more like the Black Hawk. So, what, what are you guys lifting with that one? People, we're taking troops. Our our primary mission is to fly into hot zones and insert Marines under fire. Dang. That's the primary mission. So it's sort of the infantry of the of the air. Um, so what what's the little one used for then? Um, they are usually so they can be a utility helicopter. The one that the arm or the Marines use is the Huey. So it's a mm-hmm. it's a usually light attack or light utility kinds of stuff. So yeah. they may faster up some guys. They'll carry. They can do troops too, but oftentimes it's much fewer. 
Um, yeah. We technically could carry up to 24 combat loaded Marines. Um, and usually we're carrying somewhere between 10 and 10 and 14, something like that. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're retired now. It, it was, it was around from the Vietnam era up until eight years ago or something like that. They retired the helicopter not long after I got out. Okay. They figured, you know, no one's going to match this dude. Now that he's gone, we just got to. Not quite, not quite. I, I wanted to get in. I, I want to like trace your, your kind of uh, journey into spiritual formation and discipleship, but I got to stay here for real quick. Did, did you, did you ever want to do the, like, why, why'd you do the, um, I think it's called frog. You still don't answer me. Yeah, frog. yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. So they call it the frog because if you look at it from a certain angle, it looks like a frog kind of crouched, ready to okay. jump. Okay. And, um, Navy and Marine Corps, uh, we all go through our flight schools, Naval Aviation Flight School, where we're qualified not only to fly, but we're also qualified to land on and off ships. Okay. There's a different skill set there. Um, and so we would bounce around from ship to ship as well as the shore. So there's kind of that lily pad thing. Oh, nice, dude. That's where they get it. So the Navy and the Marine Corps had uh, had frogs. Okay. Frogs. And since we're amphibious, they spelled it P-H-R-O-G, frog. Nice. Yeah. Well, okay. So why'd you pick... Maybe you didn't pick. Maybe I don't know how the Marines work, but why? Why middle of the road? Why? Why the middle one uh, for you, and not the Huey or the the big one? Well, I did want my first choice was Huey at the time mm-hmm. because they were scheduled to get an upgrade and and become much faster. Uh, and I guess I just seen a ton of Hollywood movies and the Hueys. Huey, there's so many Hueys in the world that it's it's easier for me. I've I've learned this later on. It's he, easier for Hollywood to get a hand mm. hands on old Hueys and use them. Yeah. Um, uh, but there's a trade-off when you're going through the, the selection process, when you're getting finished with flight school is it's not only you choose an airframe, but you're also choosing a location. And I really wanted to go out to Okinawa, Japan. Mm-hmm. And the only aircraft that was permanently stationed out there were, were frogs. Okay. And so, um, once I raised my hand and being willing to move my family to Okinawa, Japan, they said, that's what you're getting. So, um, if they had Huey's Okinawa, that would have been my first choice, but yeah. How I forgot how long how long were you in Okinawa? Uh, we were there twice, and we did a total of about eight and a half or about eight years. Okay. So okay. first time we were there about four and a half. Second time we were there for three years, so about seven and a half years. Okay. Also, uh, all in the span of a, about a decade, because we came back to the states for three years and then went right back. What? Um, how long were you in total? I forgot about that too. Twenty years. I was in from ninety two to two thousand and twelve. So okay. right out right out of college, I took a commission and and jumped into flight school. Dude, that's awesome. So this is another reason I love talking with you um, because if you talk to someone who was in the Marines or the SEALs or the service and the Army, whatever, like there's there's an aspect where you're like, all right, that dude's that dude's a man. Like that dude knows what's up. He you know, and you being a Gen Xer, we've talked about this, but all you guys are so chill and and it's like when every time i ask you guys hey what does it mean to be a man you guys are like eh. you're like just go do it man like what you're you're thinking about this too much you're overthinking it and i love i love uh talking with you about that but i think i finally got you to feel the angst the other day yeah i can i can feel the angst that you guys are wrestling with it i think some of the angst would go away if you didn't worry about it so much. <laughs> that's right like, just do it um <laughs> And, and some of it, I do, th- I, you know, I thought about it after we talked is I do think there are some, and you kind of admitted this as much, but I do think there's some cultural mm. uh, stereotypes out there that have been foisted on you. And maybe that's from my generation. Maybe it's more baby boomers pushing it out there. But, you know, I mean, you don't have to be, you know, 
you don't have to be Arnold or John Wayne and stuff like that. And I think some of those caricatures are still out there. Sure. But then, you know, uh, there's so much else going on with manhood these days right. and fluidity of sexualities and stuff like that. I guess, you know, even after you left, I thought about it. I go, well, no wonder because everything's in question, being questioned right now. Yeah. I mean, we even go back to questioning what it means to be human, right. much less what it means to be a man. So I, I empathize with your angst a bit. Um, I guess I still don't sweat it, but yeah. Just go become a Navy SEAL. And you're, you're- I know, dude. That's the thing. It's like, yo, you just go do that. Uh, too late for me now. But um, well, I wanted to talk about that, too, and I broached that because I want to talk a little bit about spiritual formation as as a man and maybe it, whether that is different or not from a, a lady, a woman in her spiritual formation. But I, but I thought maybe we could trace just how did you get into like discipleship and uh, getting back into to Christianity, I know you mentioned um, apologetics earlier, but how did you go from from flying a frog to you know seminary and, and discipleship and stuff? Yeah. Well, I think uh, maybe to start with, in this case, I'll violate the first things principle, but uh, I think yes, there is going to be a difference with men men and women. Um, like in our in our program, while we have some joint sessions of a class, men and women sit in class together, we do segregate them because we want men with men and women with women. Mm-hmm. It's not like just this Billy Graham rule, like, oh, we can't trust you all. You're going to do stuff you shouldn't. It's because we want men to be open up, be able to open up and talk about things that are only pertinent to men, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's not always the stereotypical, oh, I've got a porn struggle. It's just right. other things that are unique to men and, and women as well. And I, I won't put any words in the women's mouth, but I, I think they, they've they got their own challenges. So, um, So I grew up, in a good church, you know, uh, and I had no excuse to kind of go off and do what I did, but it all became clear in hindsight that I had never been discipled. Hmm. And I think, you know, um, I don't want to blame anyone in particular, but in my, so in my high school years, um, I felt really convicted and really uh, uh, compelled to try to live my faith out seriously. I mean, my sophomore year in high school, I gave up secular music and nobody told me to do this. I just thought I need to do this. And so in 1985, 86, whatever it was, I stopped, I turned off the radio and I tried to listen to Christian music. Uh, but there wasn't a ton of good stuff. That's, kind of hard. That's a hard task. Yeah. That was the emerging days, uh, the emerging days of like, uh, Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith and, yeah. you know, great for the people who love them. Sure. I could only listen to them for so long. So after a while I gave up on that and I went back to the cure and whatever else I was listening <laughs> to. But, um, but that, I just say that as an indication that I was really trying, mm-hmm. you know, and I also spent all of my sophomore year reading Proverbs and praying for wisdom because I thought if it's good enough for Solomon, it ought to be good enough for me. Amen. Um, and that was something I just kept doing, but I had three really kind of three men in my life that had a strong impact on me. My, I was really close close to my youth pastor, um, and he just was somebody I would go to with questions. I would go to him all the time. Um, I spent my summers working at the church summer camp. You know, it was just in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, just along the uh, Wisconsin border. And the camp director there was like an old school fundamentalist, fire and brimstone kind of guy, mm-hmm. but a great dude. And he was a great impact on me and he's kind of provided some of the fatherly discipline that I needed to have. And he made us work hard too. Yeah. Um, we were working from like 6am to 10pm every day. It was, it was, you know, almost slave labor. Yeah. Um, 
And then uh, I, in the school year, I actually worked at my church as a janitor when I was old enough. I needed a job. They needed someone to mop the floors and clean out the trash. And it's a, I was at Moody Church. It was a big church. Yeah. So there's a lot of floors to mop there. And so the, the building superintendent was a godly dude. So I had these guys. And while I was around them, you know, no wonder I was on the straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. But in hindsight, when I was in college and I did my own thing, I realized um, – None of those men directly poured into me. It was like secondhand smoke. Yeah. You know, I got, I got it through osmosis and anything I learned, like I would usually go to my youth pastor to ask questions. I didn't really have a ton of one-on-one sit downs with him. You know, uh, there was, ironically, we talk about the gender. There was one, I say woman, but she was a young gal. She was a Moody student. She was a, a, a volunteer in our youth group and she actually hung out with a couple of us. And I remember me and one of my buddies would go out to, lunch with her every she'd take us out to lunch and hang out with us and so in some way she discipled us more yeah. than any of the guys and i'm still friends with her today she's awesome oh, wow. but she can only do so much for a couple of pubescent boys all right uh and she's a she's a college g- girl herself so she's still figuring stuff out and so no wonder i didn't really feel equipped and i didn't figure this out though until my early to mid 30s so I was around 30 years old when uh, I, I was going on a deployment to the Middle East and I had, be, I, had, I had a family now. And as I like to say, getting married and having children will sober you up both literally and figuratively. Um, and that was my story. And I realized, hey, I'm responsible for the formation and the growth of these, of these kids. Yeah. I got I to get my act back together now while they're young. Hmm. And I was trying really hard, doing it in my own, in my own strength kind of thing. And a chaplain friend of mine who was a really smart dude and it had really taken to having dialogues with me, gave me a book before I deployed and I read it. It was a Francis Schaeffer book. And it was the first time I read anything, you know, at the time I considered it intellectual right. called a Christian manifesto. And it was the first time mentally I could sink my teeth into my faith because hmm. up until then it just kind of generalized feeling. So I was able to engage thinking and I was like, and I'd been a lazy thinker up until this point. <laughs> really terrible student, you know, not never, never horrible grades because I was smart enough just to kind of get by, but I wasn't a genius where I was just going to automatically get A's. And, um, and now all of a sudden, like this little fire was set off in my brain and I couldn't, I couldn't stop reading. And that's when I discovered apologetics, turned the radio on, heard this Indian dude called Ravi, you know, and then that, that led me down a path. I started writing down names of people I didn't hear. I've never heard of like Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. And, you know, then I discovered William Lane Craig and on and on and on. And it was a, it was my Romans 12, two moment. Hmm. And so as, as that goes on for about two or three years, I finally started to come to realize though, I'm doing all of this stuff self-taught. How do I know I'm doing it right? Yeah. How do I know I'm really getting it? I think I'm generally right. Cause I had a pretty good upbringing. Um, I don't think I'm spouting any heresy, but you know, there's different stuff on like, you know, okay, we're, I'm not as much of a nerd in this as you, but we could talk about, okay, A, a theory or B theory on time, which is, right. you know, right. there's certain things where I wanted to get, I was starting to get smart. I wanted to be more and more precise. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be, I wanted to know why I picked this view rather than this view, you know? And so I grew up in a fundamentalist sort of seven day young earth creationist dispensational. And I started questioning things like that, you know, and changing my mind on, on some stuff, but I really didn't know or have any guidance. And that's when it dawned on me. I've never been discipled. Mm. And so I started praying for it, seeking it out. I had some some near misses. And then uh, I discovered this thing called the C.S. Lewis Institute. And they had this one-year discipleship program. And I did that, and I have never looked back. It was 
that was when all the gears caught in, in, in for me. And I felt like all of a sudden, geez, why don't we do this? Why does why don't we present the Christian life like this rather yeah. than these very reductionistic, you know, got to be born again, ask Jesus into your heart, and then that's right, it. Right. Dude, I guess I didn't know it played such a big role uh, in your in your own formation. That's crazy. I had no idea. Yeah, I well, I had gotten involved with a marine discipleship ministry, and I really was hoping that I would get a lot of of mentoring there. And it's nothing against them. They're, it's a great organization, but they were starting up, and they were really looking for laborers. And I I knew enough theology at the time that they were looking for me to kind of contribute and help carry the load. And I did. You know, I was the. Uh, it's a you know anyone out there that's in the in the in the military, especially the Marine Corps, uh, look up Tun Tavern Fellowship, T-U-N, Tun Tavern. It's a, it's a network of Christians in the Marine Corps. And, you know, you can just plug in wherever you're at. And it was great, but I, I didn't find that one person that I could just kind of sit at their feet. And yeah. so um, I found that at the Institute. And the, the guy that was my mentor in the program was the president of the Institute. And he's the, he's the guy that had created this fellows program. And he just saw how hungry I was and has just been pouring into me for the past 12 years. Yeah. Dude, that's awesome. I I, uh, I don't know if I told this story in the podcast. This has it's very loosely related, but I have to say it. Uh, in in college, we had this. Uh, she might be listening right now. We had this girl, uh, young young couple of years younger than me. Maybe I was a senior. She was like a sophomore, and she was all on fire for the Lord. And and all of us were. It was great. But we we learned uh, about Christian lingo the hard way. So she she's talking to her, her non Christian roommate, and she's like, I, I want to. Uh, like, I want to tell you about Jesus. I, I want to, I want to share my faith with you and stuff. She's like, Oh, okay, cool. And she's like, yeah, I'd love to like disciple you and then, then start pouring into you. I'd love to pour into you. And she's like, cool, cool. Uh, wh- what do you want to pour into me? <laughs> because she had no frame of reference for what that means. And, uh, um, I went through this phase where I was like, all right, we got to like drop Christian lingo. And then I came full circle thinking like, that's actually really helpful. Uh, really helpful terminology. You're you're pouring into someone. You're pouring in knowledge. You're pouring in your own life and and how you've uh, grown in in Christ likeness. But I like it because you can't pour something you don't have, right? So like if you're not being filled up, then you have nothing to pour out to anyone else. And uh, so so I came full circle and I uh, I really like it again. But I just thought yeah. that was so funny. Well, make sure you make sure if you teach that phrase to somebody, you're t- explaining to them. You know, there's the there's that whole parroting of things. It's like the right. guy that you know he parrots uh, William Lane Craig's you know cosmological argument, and then he meets a savvy atheist who goes, yeah. "Well, what about these objections?" Right, and then everything falls apart. Yeah, yeah, dude. Um, well, so so you did the C.S. Lewis Institute. When did you end up coming around to TEDs? Then, yeah. So I. I, I did the Institute around uh, 2008 or so. Um, and I should say in the meantime, I had gotten really involved with the ministry of Ravi Zacharias and they did these week long um, summer institutes at Wheaton. And since I'm from Chicago, it was, it was genius. I could fly home for two weeks, you know, take two weeks of annual vacation with the kids. We'd spend a week with family, then dump the kids off with grandma and grandpa and then me and my wife would go sit at Barrow's Auditorium at Wheaton College and listen to John Lennox and Alistair McGrath and all these other guys that they would pull in. And so, it, so for a period of three or four years, I was we were. It wasn't just me reading. There was just sort of a you know a little steroid effect of. I felt like I was having to catch up. Yeah. You know, on years that I had wasted. Because um, I guess one thing I left out too is in college I was an English major. 
Ironically, I hated reading. <laughs> I loved writing and I thought, oh, I can write. And, and I, but I hated reading. But when I had that Romans 12, two moment, I said, I couldn't stop reading. That was like a marked change. Yeah. And so for about three years, I was reading every spare minute I was reading. And of course, this is pre-social media, so it was easier. Mm. But, and I remember my wife like, just slow down. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. I, I thought it was a phase. So like, I don't know how long this is going to last. I got to read up everything. And after about two and a half, three years, I realized, nah, this is the new normal. Yeah. This is this is a real transformational change. Mm-hmm. So I kind of dialed back. I'm like, okay, I got time to read this. But I still felt compelled to try to make up lost ground. I still feel that way now. I mean, yeah. I hang out with you and you're talking about stuff. I'm like, geez, how old is this guy? Yeah, I don't know about that, dude. But I, I feel the same way about catching up too because it wasn't until my, my junior year of college. And I had the same thing as you where I, could, I was smart enough to get B's. But if I wanted to get A, I had to try really hard, and so I wasn't going to do that. And then I, I, I bumped into a philosophy major, and uh, he just started asking me stuff. He was a Christian, and a new, brand new Christian. He came to faith through uh, Moody Radio, just listening to Moody Radio. I was like, that's crazy, because you're my age. Who listens to Moody Radio when you're my age? <laughs> and then comes to faith out of nowhere. He's, he's Middle Eastern, and his family is like loosely Muslim, and he just becomes a Christian. And then he's studying philosophy. And so through that uh, and and Athletes in Action, I kind of just woke up and I couldn't stop reading. You and I, I was thinking about it like, dude, I have so much to make up for. Like, I should have been doing this my whole life. What's going on? Yeah. I, I literally said multiple times in college that I was on the C's Get Degrees program. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Same way. Um, so, I mean, I was just, but I was so not, not like I was doing nothing. I was so hungry and I started to have an inkling that there might be something more after my time in the Marine Corps. And then um, I did the fellows program. I discovered that. And for me, it put things in better context. I started to see a little bit more because I was starting to become one of those guys, everything, you know, every problem is an apologetic problem. Right, dude. Um, And that just helped me in that sense. And, you know, I still felt though, after that, I felt I was called to become an apologist. Mm -hmm. You know, I was on that, that wave for a while. Um, But as one of the things after I left the fellows program, uh, I had finished and then I got orders and I went off to California and then deployed to Afghanistan. But uh, my mentor had given me some stuff to read and he just kept pushing me deeper and deeper into a theology of discipleship. Mm. And I read a book on the biblical theology of discipleship. And this is before I knew that biblical theology was a category. You know, I just thought it was one of those tautology types of things. Like, right. okay, he's an all the, anyways. And I grew a little bit more mature in my understanding of discipleship and things like that. And I just thought, you know, I, I started examining my own life and going, you know, here I am a lay person and I shouldn't have struggled the way I did, you know, not that I shouldn't be without struggle in life, but this part should have been explained to me up front because I was in a good Christian church um, with good people, but it just goes to show there's a little bit of, I think sometimes misunderstanding or miss, we don't, we don't communicate what we know effectively. Mm -hmm. And I probably should have known some of these things earlier on. And so I kind of resolved myself to nobody should have to struggle like this again. Yeah. And so I I didn't think I'd work for the Institute because I figured they know what they're doing. They don't need my help. I need to take this somewhere else. And I wanted to go into a ministry, like maybe an apologetics ministry or whatnot, to bring this edge into it to go, hey, look, what you're doing is great, but let's make sure it's in the context of helping people grow in Christ. Because, you know, e- apologetics ministries like to think that they're speaking to non-Christians all the time, when in reality, about 80 percent of their audience is usually Christian right. or those that are on the edge, like the nominal folks. Yeah. And so, okay, embrace that. Embrace the fact that you are reaching the lost, but that you are also preaching to the choir. 
Yeah. So there, let's beef that up. Let's make sure you're being responsible with that and being effective in those sorts of things. I thought I could take something like that in, but then um, it's really funny how I ended up at Ted's cause I was living in Southern California. Um, I had met with Mike Wilkins, who was the Dean of, uh, Dean of theology, Dean of Talbot school of theology at the time. Um, cause a friend, my, my mentor had hooked up a meeting for me and I'm like, this is it. I'm going to Talbot. I'm going to go study, you know, they had their philosophy and ethics program. Yeah. And I'm like, that's what I'm doing. But series of, of events and family and stuff like that drew us back to Chicago and then I thought, okay, I'm going to go to, because I want to study philosophy, right? So I'm like, I'm going to Wheaton College. I'm going to study philosophy. I'm going to do a master's in philosophy. They don't have a master's program in philosophy. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they got a, they got a faculty, a staff, but they don't have a program because it's all for the undergrad. Yeah. And so uh, they had a program at Trinity that I was interested in. And so in a sense, I, I, I say I backed into Trinity, but in hindsight, I can see why God had me there. Seriously. So, yeah. So I ended, that's where I ended up. And then it was while I was at Trinity that the Institute had said, Hey, why don't you start the Institute in Chicago while you're, while you're there? Dude, I'm so glad all that connect that, that, that happened. Cause now we know each other through Joel, Joel's in your class, loudmouth, you know, always going at the professor. We ask good questions though. I would sit there and go, okay, I can't think of some questions, but I know Joel will. And he, <laughs> he, he always had good questions. I love that. Well, dude, um, I'm, I love what you do. Um, I want people that I disciple to go on and, and to be in the C.S. Lewis Institute to um, to do the fellows program. How how can people find out about that? You know, um, the number of ways. The best thing to do is go to our website. It's one, one long word, cslewisinstitute.org. Mm. And then go to the cities. There's a tab for cities. Find the Chicago one and and. All of my contact information is right there. But if you go on Twitter, Instagram, all of the all of the usual suspects, you're going to find the C.S. Lewis Institute Chicago. There are we're in 16 cities, so just be forewarned that if you look up C.S. Lewis Institute, you're going to have to find the Chicago one. Yeah. So because uh, we're we're growing, you know, God's blessing us right now, so we're kind of all over the map. But if you go to the our webpage and find me there, um, you can join us and. You know, we're taking applications for a couple more weeks. I know it says the deadline is April 15th, but I'll take a few late applications. Okay. It's a tuition-free program, so you can't beat that. Right. Just come yeah. join us. It's a great yeah. year. And we have Van Hooser teaching the, in the class. He's going to teach cultural apologetics for us this year. He's so good at that, too. I love that. Um, also, I, I have to just mention that for the for the watchers, people watching, if, if you look at KJ and you see Nick Offerman, uh, you are not alone. That is, he looks You're exact. not the first person to say that. He's the exact same age as me too. So I think he oh, and I drink some Lagavulin together. Yeah, I love that. Um, so so go study with with the, the Christian, Nick Offerman. Um, oh, shoot. I forgot what I was going to say, KJ. Um, C.S. Lewis Institute, how can they join? Um, oh, yeah. Well, another thing is it's tuition free. So if somebody wanted to uh, to help support that, because someone's got to pay for that. How, yep. is, there, is there a way that, that someone could, could donate to the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago? Yeah. Send me your winning lottery ticket. Um, yeah, no, uh, same website. We have a, we have a give page. If you go to okay. the same website and click on give right on the front page or, you know, the easiest thing is ever, if, if nobody can remember that email me KJ at cslewisinstitute.org and I can help. I, I can, you know, we do need help. We are donor run, yeah. uh, but uh, I, I, we do a lot of other stuff. If, if you're interested in partnering us in your church too, email me. Yeah. Even if you want to just chat and drink scotch, email me. <laughs> maybe maybe we can raffle off an evening with Parker and KJ, and um, we'll drink scotch and smoke some pipes. That'd be awesome, man. I love that. And I'll, uh, I'll provide the Nick Offerman Lagavulin. 
There you go. And I won't take uh, the video down just because you uh, talked about pipes and Lagavulin. So uh, take that. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Uh, dude, this has been so much fun. Uh, you got to come back and, and we'll talk some more spiritual formation, discipleship stuff. Uh, I, I really appreciate all the help you've you've helped me with, dude. I love talking with you. So uh, I know that, that the listener is going to love that, too. So thanks for coming on, man. Hey, same. I, I appreciate you. And uh, even though I have a hard time saying Parker's Pensies, uh, <laughs> I love it. Keep it going. And hey, if you guys aren't subscribed, help him get to a thousand subscribers. We need to we need to get Parker out there more because we need more good content like this. I'm, I'm excited to be in the lineup now. I love that. That's awesome. All right. Well, um, Lord willing, we'll be able to talk about this a little bit more, but that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.